Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, perhaps you have an app on your phone you can pull up. or um, There's also a Bible right in front of you that's from the same version that I'll be reading from. And if you're looking for Second Peter chapter 3 in the Pew Bible, it's page 1080. All right, so you can turn there, Second Peter chapter 3. We're in this series of messages called Pulling Together. We started it last week, and we're looking at some of the um, things that we as a congregation need to begin to pull together on, to unite around, to grab the rope together and pull. And so we're going to continue that uh, today. We're going to look at another aspect of what it means to pull together. Um, but before we do that, um, I want to remind you of our purpose statement, the reason that we exist, the reason that we're here, the whole reason for us to be here as a church. And it's on the wall outside, but we're kind of taking our uh, messages over the next three weeks, and we're looking at these we took last week and then the next three weeks, to look at what this really means and what those ideas are that we're to pull together on. And so our purpose statement here at First Baptist Church is that we exist to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. Um, as we start, I want you to see the picture of a couple of heroes. There are people that you may never have seen, people you may not know, but they are heroes nonetheless. We've got that picture right here, all right? And so this is a nice young couple. This is Derek and Jessica Simmons. Um, you can see they're out on the beach. It looks like a, a great place. You just look at them and you think, well, that's a cool couple, a nice young couple. But they truly are heroes. You see, earlier this year in July, they were on the beach having a normal kind of day when they caught something in their eye that made them stop and look. In fact, what had happened is that Roberta Unsay and her family were also at the beach that day. And while they were playing out in the water, she had decided that she wanted to go and dry off and get kind of ready to go in for lunch. And so as she went to the the beach to dry off and get ready, she looked around to tell her sons what was happening. And when she looked around, her sons were much farther away, much farther out than she had thought they were. And as she looked, she saw them much further out. And then she began to focus on them. She realized she could hear their voices screaming. Something was wrong. And so Roberta did what any mother would do. She yelled for her husband and they began to swim out to them. As they got to them, she went, her husband went, her mother, the grandmother went, nieces and nephews went. They got out there, they found out that they were caught in a rip current. And as they went out to save them, they themselves got caught in the rip current. There are now ten people surrounded in this rip current that are in serious danger. And that's where Derek and Jessica Simmons come in. They were walking along the beach and uh, she had picked up a... Um, a boogie board. She had seen a kind of a boogie board that had just been left on the beach. And so she was picking it up and she was going to take it back to her room. And she had planned on maybe later today using that. But she was just kind of salvaging it. And when she picked it up, she somehow turned. And when she turned, she saw something in the distance. And as she saw something in the distance, she saw this group of people struggling out there. And people that were obviously trapped in some way. And so she yelled at her husband, Derek, and said, we got to do something. She said, I grew up in a pool all my life. I knew how to swim. I knew I could make it to him, especially with the boogie board. So she hops on the boogie board and begins to paddle out there. And her husband says, I'm going to get some people to help us. 
And so they begin to do their various tasks. She paddles out in their direction and the husband begins to get people. And what they begin to do is to form a human chain. They start to grab hands. This is actual pictures from Panama City Beach, July like 11th this year. And as they're forming hands and chain out there, Jessica is paddle boarding out there. She gets there, it's a dire situation. The grandmother that had been out there was exhausted. She was drinking in water. Her head was going below the surface. She got up enough to say, take everyone else, just leave me. It's worthless, hopeless right now. It's not worth it. Jessica said, we're going to do all that we can. And when she turned around, she saw this human chain her husband had been forming was now 80 people strong. All the way from where they were to the shoreline. They linked arms together and they began one by one, starting with the children, to pull those people to safety. I mean, the situation was dire. In fact, Roberta, who was the mother, said that she doesn't even remember being rescued. She just remembers waking up on the beach. The grandmother actually went into cardiac arrest. They had paramedics on the scene because someone at the back of the line had called them and said, be ready, we're working on this rescue. Eighty people pulling people along. Jessica Simmons said, it was the most remarkable thing to see. These people didn't even know each other. And they trusted each other enough to get these people to safety. Ursay called the 80 people God's angels and said, I owe my life and my family's life to them. And Simmons said about this, it was so cool to see how we have our own lives and we're constantly busy. But when someone needs help, everybody dropped everything and pitched in to make it happen. What it would look like if as the church of Jesus Christ called to be the church here at First Baptist Goodlettsville. We begin to link our arms and form a human chain to accomplish what God has called us to do. To link together. To grab and pull together. To do what God has called us to do. Remember, we exist to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we talked last week about the glorifying God, and we talked about it in a little bit different way. If you weren't here last week, I really encourage you to go back and listen to the message. It's up online. You can find it at our website. Just click on sermons, fbcgoodlittle.com. Click on the sermons, and it'll take you to a page that has them all. And look for the first one that says something about pulling together. We exist to glorify God. We talked about being people of prayer. And we talked about being a, a people who, who invested, who gave generously. We talked about being a people who invited who gathered to scatter and about being a people that never let go of the message that only Jesus saves. This week what I want to do is kind of move to the next phrase in that purpose statement. That we exist to glorify God. How? By leading people. You see, the purpose of God, the mission of God on this earth has always been about people. We know this from the earliest age, right? Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world. Some of you would be upset if I didn't finish it, right? Red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. We know this. We say this. That God's about people. That Jesus loves people. That we should be about people. That God's mission on earth has always been about rescuing, redeeming people. Bringing a people to His own. Saving them from themselves. 
And if we are to be God's church, we must be about people. Not programs and budgets and ideas, although those are important. Not facilities, but people. Which leads us to Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 8. And let me set the scene for you, what's happening in Second Peter real quickly. Second Peter uh, is written by Peter, right? And he tells us at the beginning of chapter 3, we know this Second Peter, because he said, this is the second letter I've written to you. So that makes it easy to know this is Second <coughs> Peter. He's written to groups of Christians all over kind of the world. And what he's saying to them is, there have been some discussion that had come up about why Jesus hadn't come back yet. I'm just going to be a little perspective here. We're talking 30 to 40 years after Jesus had ascended into heaven and said, I will come back. Then people were like, he's not back yet. Jesus said he was coming back. He's not back yet. I don't think he's coming back. Because if he was coming back, he would be back. And that was the discussion happening among people around them. Now, think about that. That's 30 to 40 years after Jesus had risen and gone back to the Father. We are now what? Almost 2,000 years. What part of me thinks is how interesting it is that the people that were 30 to 4 years from Jesus were looking more intently for his return than we often are. So Peter begins to say to him, listen, listen, you've got it all wrong. You think that it's been a short or long time since Jesus left. But in God's economy, it hasn't been. I mean, he tells them in verse 8, if, uh, verse eight of chapter 3, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Now, let me just say this. That doesn't mean God's up in heaven with a calculator, and He multiplying every day by a thousand. Like, it's not saying that literally it's like a thousand. What it's saying is, God is not limited in any way by time. And we have a minuscule understanding of God and how He handles time. You see, God is infinite and eternal. There are no limits whatsoever on Him, time, space, anything. We live in a world that is constantly limiting us, and yet God has no limits. What it's saying there is, for us, it seems like a long, long time. But for God, time's not an issue. He created it. I was thinking about this because um, we have a, a, a... five-year-old in our house who thinks time moves much more slowly than we do and so we'll tell her hey um she had a party to go to last night because you know saturday nights are five-year-old party heaven right she had a party to go to last night and it started at 6 30 and we told her at 5 30 it'll be an hour before your party begins and at 5.32, she said, let's go, Daddy, the party's starting. No, it's not starting. It'll be an hour before the party begins. And three minutes later, Daddy, is it time for the party to start? We need to go. Like, she doesn't have a concept of what that means. We have no concept of what it means that God is being patient. And our timetable does not limit God. I mean, think of how ridiculous that is. God, if you could answer this prayer in the next 30 days, that would be awesome. Or the next 30 minutes. He says to God, one day is like a thousand, a thousand like one day. And then he says, the Lord does not delay his promise. As some understand delay. But is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He says he doesn't want any to perish, 
but all to come to repentance. Can I tell you something real quickly? This is just astonishing to me. Because for the last ten years, I've made some pretty bold statements about what any and all mean. I don't think they're bold, but apparently, according to scholars, they're bold. Because I read six pages of discussion about what any and all means in this passage. Well, what does it mean he doesn't want any to perish? What does it mean that he wants all to come to salvation? Here's what I can tell you. In my professional opinion, any means any. And all means all. That God desires for every human being to have the opportunity and to respond to him in faith, following Jesus Christ, being saved. He does not want anyone to go to hell, and he wants all to come to repentance. That's his business. That's his goal. That's his purpose for us and for him, is that he wants all people to come to faith. Now, in case we miss that, Jesus said this throughout his ministry. Look at Luke 5. It's going to be on the screen. You have to look it up. Luke 5.31 says, Jesus replied to them. This is when Levi, who was a tax collector, was called to follow him. And he went and said, I'll follow you. And Jesus goes and has dinner at his house. He comes out of the house. The church folks, the religious people, are really upset that Jesus went and ate lunch at Levi's house. And Jesus comes out and says, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. My goal, my purpose is not to be here just to find people that are already here. My goal is to reach out and to discover and to find those that are far from God and bring them into the family. Luke 19.10, Zacharias, same kind of situation. He goes, I mean, not Zacharias, Zacchaeus. He sees the thing. Zacchaeus up in a tree, invites him down. They go eat at his house. He comes out of the house. Some church folk, religious folk, people that are really concerned about this, say, what are you doing? Why are you eating at his house? And Jesus says, the Son of Man, that's him, has come to seek and to save the lost. It is evident throughout Scripture that God's purpose in the Old Testament, when He calls Abram and says from the Ur of Counties, I'm going to take you and take you to a place you do not know. He says, I'm going to make you a blessing. But He doesn't say, I'm just going to bless you and your family. He says, and through your family, every family, every nation on the earth shall be blessed. When He creates the temple, He creates an area for the Gentiles to come. And He says, this is to be a house of prayer for the nations. That people are to come and to seek Me at this place. God has always been about taking His people to go to the world and those far from Him. And in case we miss that point, Matthew 28 makes it very clear. Jesus says, go therefore... And make disciples of all nations. Now it doesn't say converts, by the way. It doesn't say we just go out there and get them saved and leave them there. We'll talk about that more next week. But it does say that part of the process is getting to the saving faith with Jesus Christ. Introducing them to Jesus and allowing God to work in their hearts to bring them into salvation. Baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then the verse that we've built a lot of strategy on around here over the last 10 years, Acts 1.8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So you want to know what your purpose is. You want to know what the purpose of this church is. You want to know what we're about. Here's what we should be about. Here's what you should be about is this. That if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, then you do what Jesus did. If you're going to do what Jesus did, that means that you are going to seek out, to look for, to reach out to those that are far from God and help introduce them to Jesus.
And the command that we're given is that we're to do that across the street with our neighbor all the way to around the world and everywhere in between. And if we're going to be a church that's passionate about what Jesus is passionate about, then we will be a church that does whatever it takes to reach out to people that are far from God. I want you to notice something interesting in the second Peter passage. You still got yours open. Look there. Second Peter chapter three. Because I've highlighted something else in this passage that we've pointed out before, but it just hits me every time I read it. Dear friends, don't overlook this fact with the Lord. One day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord hadn't delayed his promises. He's still coming. He's still going to come back. He's still going to come back and judge. He's still going to come back and take the redeemed with him and to judge those that are not as some understand delay. And then it says this, but he is patient with whom you now, those of you that know about Peter, to whom is the book of Second Peter written? Is it written to those that are far from God or is it written to those that are already in Christ? There's already Christians, people that are followers of Jesus. And this is what is fascinating to me. He says that he is patient with us. My understanding of that passage is this, twofold. First of all, that we would continually seek God in repentance and asking him what we should do. And secondly, he doesn't want anyone to be lost. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He doesn't want anyone to not understand him. And he says that he's being patient with us, basically to do the job that he's commissioned us to do. And so the question becomes... Will we do it? Over the last year, as God has been taking me on this journey, as we've been thinking about what does the next 10 years, what does the next five years look like for First Baptist Goodlettsville? The question that has formed in my mind again and again is, are we willing to go to those who are far from God? Are we willing? And how uncomfortable are we willing to be in order to do it? And that's the question that I want to ask you today. We're going to kind of shift the way the sermon goes from here, and I'll tell you that in just a second. But this is the question I want to reverberate in your mind over the next few minutes, over the next few days, over the next few weeks. How uncomfortable are you willing to be to reach those far from God? We are the method that God has chosen to take his message to the world. How uncomfortable are we willing to be in order to reach those far from God. See, here's a conviction of my heart. Is that God does not call us to a comfortable lifestyle. He did not call us to just have everything go our way. He did not call us to have everything we ever wanted. He called us to a lifestyle that is dedicated and devoted to Him. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus, that means that we need to follow Jesus in every way imaginable. And one of the things that I know for sure is that Jesus cared so much, so much about those that were far from him, that he came, an uncomfortable is not even a good word to describe it. The scripture says that he became obedient to death, even death on a cross, to reach out to you and to me. And so the question becomes, how uncomfortable are we willing to be to tell people that message? And so here's what I want to do for the rest of the sermon. Is I want to give you some hypothetical questions. Because I want to probe this in your heart. I want to ask this to you to see where it goes in your life. And some of these questions you're going to go, oh, that ain't no problem. I'd be glad to do that. But my guess is that somewhere along the way, there's going to be a question. There are going to be some questions that are going to ask you that I'm going to ask that you're going to go, oh, I don't know about that. And I just want you to answer the question, how uncomfortable are you willing to be in order to reach those far from God? Now, let me tell you this. 
What is not up for debate is what we said earlier that we will proclaim as long as I'm your pastor at First Baptist Gospel, we will proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ every time we're together. And we will base everything that we're doing on reaching people with the gospel, not just building a church, not just collecting people into a social club, not just getting people to change their behavior, but allowing people to come in contact with the risen Savior who can change their life. But the question becomes... How far are we willing to go to tell people about that? So I'm going to ask you in three different spheres of your life, we're going to start big and we're going to move to small. I just want you to think in your own heart about these, in your own life about these, in truth about this. The first question is, how uncomfortable are we willing to be as a church to reach those far from God? Now I could start with simple things like, would you be willing to move your seat? I know. I started simple is what I said. Some of you are like, now nah, I listen. Some of you have been sitting in that same seat for five years. It is it has an impression of your bottom built into it, all right? Like, I don't know about that. We know how difficult this is when just on occasion I started, I know Jeff had you pray together. I started to come out and say, I need everybody to switch seats somewhere today. And that would have caused more riot than uh, other things in life, all right? So how many of you are willing? What if it meant giving up your seat? What if it meant giving up your parking spot? What if it meant it being harder to come to church on a Sunday morning? You had to park farther away. You had to walk more. You didn't get to sit where you wanted to sit. It was a little more crowded. What if it meant that church wasn't as comfortable an experience for you? What if it meant that we changed as a church how we invested our resources? That in faith we began to invest in things that were more intentional about taking the gospel to those that are far from God. You know what's interesting? I mentioned that passage of scripture earlier. The, the, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. We know that. Like Zacchaeus, right? Luke chapter 19. If you grew up in church, you've heard that. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Right? You know that. And some of you that didn't grow up in church would know that. You've heard that little song. And like, I don't know who Zacchaeus is or why it matters that he's short. Right? And so we've heard that. You know what's interesting? And I just saw this this week. Now, uh, the truth is, I may have seen this some other time in my life. But I'm getting older and I forget things sometimes. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Like, it happens. And so I may have heard this at some other time. But it just linked together for me as I was studying actually this morning. Looking back over it for the last time. It just, God connected these two things. And so I want you to think about this. Does anybody know what Luke chapter 19, so verse 10 is, Son of Man came to seek and to save what is lost. Does anybody know what Luke chapter 19, 11 starts? Does anybody have any clue? Some of you are turning, I hear the Bible's turning, like I'm going to get the answer real quick, all right? It says this, this is interesting, this is verse 11, you don't have to turn there, you can just listen, it's not going to be on the screen because this was after in screen notes, all right? As they were listening to this, so Jesus says, the Son of Man came to save that which was lost, to seek and to save that which was lost. After they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable. So I would think that what he's doing is connecting what has just happened about Jesus has come to seek and to save that which is lost to the parable he's about to tell, right? You may want to guess what the parable is he tells. The parable of the ten minus. Okay, I don't really know what that is, all right? The ten minus is this parable similar to the parable of the talents where a guy's going away and he gives them some money and he tells them to invest the money. And one does and invests and makes a return. And Jesus says, you've been faithful with the little, I'll give you a lot. And another does the same thing. And then one comes and says, hey, I just, I knew you were a hard man, I hid it, so here's your money back, I didn't do anything with it. And he gets 
reamed out by the guy and says, listen, that's not what I ask you to do. Take the money he has and give it to another. And the point of that is that we ought to be investing with our, what God has given us. God has given us everything we've got. We ought to be investing that in the purposes and the plans of God. He has just told them the purposes and the plans of God is to seek and to save that which is lost. And then he tells them a story about investing in the things that God cares about. So what do you think the point is? To invest in what? Seeking and saving the lost. What if as a church we began to analyze everything we do from a budgeting standpoint, from a giving standpoint? What if you began to analyze everything you do as you give to this church from an idea of how is this investing in seeking and saving those that are far from God? Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. Well, and one thing I think it will mean is that we would increase what we give to the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention. Cooperative program, Southern Baptist Convention is where we pool our money with other Southern Baptist churches and we send thousands of missionaries all over the world. And we have increased our giving to the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention about five times in the last ten years and we're still around five percent. Which tells me we weren't very big to start with ten years ago. What if it meant that we looked at programs, we looked at things and we asked, okay, how can we trim? How can we cut? How can we give? What if we began to say, how can I give to more causes to be a supporting church for a church in Denver or Phoenix or Los Angeles that is struggling to take the gospel into one of the hardest areas of the country and we say, we want to provide just a portion of what it takes to run what you're doing. We want to support you on a regular basis with a monthly gift. You don't have to worry about it. It's going to be there. What if it meant investing not only in how we're doing missions around the world and cooperative program in various projects throughout the country and throughout our city and throughout the world, but what if it meant we began to ask the question, how do we invest in what people know about us and how they view us? What if we made significant investment in the first place that people see when they come to our church? Anybody want to know what that is? It's the website. It's not the building. About 90% of people today visit your website before they visit the church. We, we uh, put uh, $99 into our website five years ago. You know what our website looks like? We put $99 into our website five years ago. I'm talking significant investment. What if we change the story of who we are in the community to what is actually happening and not what people can imagine? So we make it, became more intentional about promotional resources and our logo and our branding and what that looks like and what it communicates. What if we meant that we invested our time and our talent in areas that actually gave a better face to what's happening in this church to the community? I mentioned this last week, but over the last few weeks we've had uh, somebody in here that was a secret shopper and an anonymous churchgoer that helped us to figure out. And if you're a guest here today, you think, boy, I walked in on a family day. You did. But I hope you see our heart and where we're going. And there are some deficiencies we have in welcoming people into this place on a weekly basis. We knew that. But he helped us to see it with a little clarity. He didn't know where to park. There were no signs out there to tell him where to park or people. He ended up in the children's area because he was the only door he saw. He didn't have any kids with him. Nobody helped him to find out where to get to the sanctuary. He kind of wandered around until he got here. Nobody gave him a bulletin. He said two people did talk to him, but one of their first lines was, Boy, you look lost. That may have double meaning, but we may not want to start that as the first question, all right? 
What would it mean if you gave up a Sunday every six weeks to stand in the parking lot for three hours instead of being in here? Or to greet people at the door? Or to make gifts to give to people that come as first-time guests? What if it meant, how how uncomfortable are you willing to become? What if it meant changing the way that we do church? What if it meant changing the way we do music in one or both services? What if it meant changing the way we do Sunday school? To not just Sunday school and that's it, but Sunday school and groups and homes during the week or on Sunday night. What if it meant looking at locations outside of this particular location, asking the question, is this still the best place to be in order to reach people that are far from God with the gospel? What if it meant looking at areas of the of the of this region where we already have groups of people that are established and there and they're driving here. Some of you driving here on a Sunday morning and say, "Okay, would it be better to start a work? Would it be a better investment of our time to take people and go to there and start a work there where people already are living their life? What if it meant changing the name of this place? Some of you are like, I've been here three weeks. I don't really care. Some of you have been here. We'll just say more than three weeks. Last week in this service, when I asked how many of you lived outside of Goodlettsville, it was about 65 to 70%. So what if Goodlettsville no longer describes who we are? I grew up uh, First Baptist Church, Dyersburg, Tennessee. First church I pastored was First Baptist Church, Ripley, Tennessee. Only other church I've ever pastored is First Baptist Church, Goodlettsville, Tennessee. I've been a member on a roll of a Sunday school of a First Baptist Church all but three years of my life. But I also read every survey I read says that those two words are now hindrances to people attending your church. So what if it meant? We looked at that. Said, how can we reach people that are far from God? Now, I want to say something real clearly. None of these are suggestions or recommendations. Because I know the phones are going to be burned up. Pastor said we're changing our name. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is how uncomfortable are we willing to be to reach those that are far from God. As a church. And here's my heart. My heart is that I want to see God do a work that only he can do. But I want to put ourselves in the position like Zacchaeus. That's best to see that happen. Second question. How uncomfortable are you willing to be at home to reach those far from God? When I was growing up, I had a desire that when I grew older, I wanted, there were two kind of, kind of areas in the world that I wanted to visit and, and spend some time in. I wanted to go to the northeast United States, kind of, well, kind of northeast and down a little bit, kind of where our country was founded and all those historical sites. I love the American Revolution and all those kind of things. George Washington wanted to go and visit there a lot, see all that kind of stuff. And I wanted to go to Europe, particularly Rome. I wanted to go to Europe and tour Europe, and I have been to none of those places. None of them. I have been to Brazil a few times, and for some reason, God has taken me with a desire to go to the Northeast, and over the last few years, He's given me trips to the Far West. And so this summer, I've been in three major population centers in the West. Phoenix, Arizona, Los Angeles, California, and Denver, Colorado. And one of the things that I have seen out there is that people... I don't even think the word apathetic is the right word about our faith and about Jesus. It's not on their radar. 
Like Jesus and the name of Jesus and church is not on their radar. I mean, down here, down here in the south, you still ask about four basic questions when you meet somebody. What's your name? How's your family? Where are you from? Where you go to church? Well, I was told on four separate occasions, three different cities, and then another one, I was uh, meeting with a couple that's just moved down here from Chicago last um, week at a school function, and they said in those places, if you ask somebody, where do you go to church, it's offensive. Lord, are you judging me? Why would I go to church? It's not on their radar. Now here's the conviction that I have. Here's the thing that is, is, is making me think through all this partially is that as I read statistics, as I look at the culture, as I try to read the culture, what I discover is that Denver, Phoenix, and Los Angeles is not becoming more like the Bible Belt. The Bible Belt is becoming more like Denver and Phoenix and Los Angeles. And where they are without a movement of God and a great awakening is where we are going. And there's a good likelihood that even in the neighborhoods in which you live, you have a lot of people that think more like Denver and Phoenix and Los Angeles than you do about 1960s Nashville. There's a song on contemporary Christian radio right now. My kids love it. I like it. I like the sentimentality of it. It's called I Want to Go Back. Do you know that song? Some of you know that song. I want to go back to Jesus loves me, this I know, and this idea of I just want to go back to simpler times. Can I tell you something? We're not. This is not happening. Now, we can talk about the nostalgic past of the Bible Belt all we want to, but we're going to be, especially with millions of people moving in or a million people moving into Nashville in the next however long, two months or 50 years, whatever it is, right? There are going to be a lot more thinking like the West and the Northeast than the South. And so as I've been out there and I've visited with those people, I've begun to ask the question, what are they doing to reach people and what does that mean for us? And one of the key elements that is happening in all of those areas is that people are using their homes as the basis for outreach. Not the church, their home. Almost every one of the church planners that I talk to, well, how are you starting? Well, we're having cookouts at our house. We're having dinners at our house. We're inviting people to our home. We're talking to people in our neighborhood about coming to our home. We host meals every Tuesday night for people in our neighborhood. When someone drives up and they're moving in, I give them a card and invite them to a Monday night barbecue that's going to be at our house. We do it every week for our neighbors. Because before they will ever consider coming to a church, they need to see what a Christian looks like in normal life. And the problem is that that goes against the counter, against the culture in which we live, that our homes have become places of isolation and relaxation and entertainment. Like our homes are the only place nobody's telling us what we got to do, except for our spouses, maybe. Right? But it's this place where we get to go home and we want to relax. We want to isolate ourselves. In entertainment, there is not like people coming in that's not entertaining, it's entertainment. We want to sit and veg out and watch and get on our screens, computers, our iPads, our iPhones, our television, and we want to veg for a little bit. And what happens in the neighborhoods all across this region is that everybody drives into their garage. The garage, a lot of times, is in the back of the house. You drive in, you close the garage, you go in, you got your front door shut, and you isolate yourself in the midst of that to relax and be entertained. And we're missing opportunities of people all around us that need to hear about Jesus. 
I read this. This is J.D. Greer makes this statement all the time. But 39 out of the 40 miracles in Acts happened outside the church. And if Acts is to be something that shows us how the church grows, a church growth manual, then what we need to see is people having people in their homes so that before they ever get to church, they see what the gospel looks like. Gospel is a, tells us that we ought to be people of hospitality because God is a God of hospitality. He welcomes people. There's a book out there right now called The Simplest Way to Change the World. I would highly recommend it. If you don't, well, I don't know how to find that. Just Google it, Amazon it. Um, I did a, a blog post in the last couple of weeks that showed the books I'm reading this fall. It's on there. You can click on there and it'll take you right to the Amazon site. And they say in there, and I believe, you know, it's one of those things that I wasn't on my radar four months ago, and I am just becoming more and more convinced of this. The secret weapon for gospel advancement is hospitality. Now, what would happen if, instead of barbecuing in the backyard, you moved it to the front yard and you invited your neighbors just to come over? You know how many times I drive into my neighborhood and I think, man, somebody's grilling out tonight. I don't ever see anybody grilling out because you're always grilling out where? Behind the fence in the backyard. On your patio where nobody can see you. What if you're on the front and like, yeah, come on, we're having hot dogs and hamburgers. Come on, let's go, let's eat. Some of you know every neighbor in your neighborhood, you know their whole life story. Well, then invite them to your house, have dinner once a week. Well, they go to other churches. That's okay. You do know it's okay to, to like talk about Jesus with people that go to other churches, right? Now, do know that's okay. What would happen if you started with a brunch on a Saturday for anybody in your neighborhood that wanted to come? A dinner on a Tuesday night, once every couple of weeks. And told them, hey, we're gonna we're just going to eat together and then I just want to talk about some things with life and begin a Bible study there. Now, I know the first thing that happens when I begin to say this, wait, 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 wait a minute. Um, that would mean a lot of work getting the house ready for guests to come. My first question is, how uncomfortable are you willing to be at home to see people reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ? My second comment on that is I've read three things this week that state that the average American spends more time cleaning their house than any group of people in the history of the world. People used to have dirt floors. They didn't care how dirty it was. Right? Now if there's a speck of dirt on your floor, we can't have neighbors over. Well, my house got to be perfect before anybody can walk in there. We all know that's not how, you, how your house looks all the time. Amen? Amen? Now, some of you were like, no, my house is perfect all the time. Well, then come to my house and clean it all the time, all right? I mean, Susan and I work hard. We we worked all day yesterday on some stuff. We literally go in to change, get ready for the night. We walk out, and we have four kids. Do you all know we have four kids? They don't seem to be as concerned about the general cleanliness of the house as we are. Don't let that be a barrier to people coming to your house. What would it look like if instead of going in at night and just closing the door, you left the front door open, you sat out and you talked? Now, I know we also don't have porches like they used to with the rocking chairs from Cracker Barrel and all that stuff, all right? What would happen if we opened our lives to those around us? How uncomfortable are you willing to be at home? And here's the last one and then we're done. How uncomfortable are you willing to be in sharing your faith? To reach those far from God. It comes down to simple one-on-one conversations. How how willing are you to be uncomfortable in doing that? 
Here's the truth. We're evangelists. From the time we're born, we're evangelists. Now, when I say that word, what do you immediately think of? Billy Graham. Somebody comes to your church and speaks for a week and goes to the high school and passes out free pizza for anybody that comes and gives a Turner Burn sermon right at the top, right? Evangelist means just sharer of good news. And you know what? There are a lot of evangelists in this church. And on my Facebook feed, there are all kinds of evangelists. Evangelists for essential oils and rodent and fields and Kentucky basketball, Vanderbilt football these days. They got them all over the place. Preds. Going to be some evangelists real soon because the season's coming for the Western Conference champions. Right? We don't have any problem sharing good news. There are evangelists all the time on there about babies being born or a good day at the office or a wedding announcement coming up. We don't have any problem sharing good news. The truth is, for some reason, we're a little more reluctant when it comes to sharing the great news of Jesus. When Paul asked people to pray for him, one of the things that he prays often or asks for is that people would pray for him to be bold. And if we're going to reach people far from God, it can't stop at, we want you to come and be a part of this cool social club. Or we just want you to come have dinner at our house every Tuesday night just for fun and never get around to the most essential conversation of life about the gospel. Well, pastor, I don't even know where to begin that conversation. Well, how uncomfortable are you willing to be to take some time to figure that out? Well, I wouldn't, if they asked me some questions, I wouldn't know how to answer them. First of all, you can imagine a lot of strange questions that they'll never ask. Secondly, how uncomfortable are you willing to be to get trained to be able to answer those questions? It comes down to a question of want and desire. It's a simple gospel. God's not mad at you. He loves you. You've chosen to walk away from him. And it's very easy to show people that the consequences of their life are there partially because they have chosen to go against God's rule. And as a result of that, God has sent his son to die for you and to save you and to give you a hope and a future. How willing are you to be in sharing your faith? You see, I keep going back to that picture of the human chain on the beach. And I keep thinking to myself, okay, this, man, this is an awesome story. Amen? I mean, it's an awesome story. But how cool would it be is instead of a human chain of people reaching out to save them from physical waters, if we were a church that was a human chain reaching all over this region to reach people that are far from God and in much more eternal danger than these people were physical. You know what I notice about this picture? And you, I know you can't really see it that great. I mean, you can see this little line of people, and I'm up close, and I can see it a little bit better, but there weren't great pictures of this. One of the things I notice about this picture is that there are people in full clothes out there, right? You know why? Because when they said, let's go, they didn't say, wait a minute, let me change into what's appropriate for this particular situation. They were, let's just go. There's a guy out there with a hat on, shirt on. That looks like a, like a nice shirt right there. What I also notice, you go back to the picture before that, the one that's the, the wide one. You know what I notice? The closer you get to the danger zone, the more uncomfortable the people have to be. Because if you notice, these people down here, they're like waist deep, right? Look at these. You can barely see some heads bobbing. 
And the closer you get to the people that are in danger, the more uncomfortable it's going to be. That's true for you individually. That's true for us as a church. It's all well and good to have that conversation in here today. Oh, yeah, we want to reach people. We want to do, we'll do whatever it takes. But then you get out deep into the water and you're like, woo-woo, I don't know about that. Now, these people are linked together. And so when they get out there, and one of them may have thought, man, I shouldn't have done this. They got two people on each side that they got to depend on them to do it. Man, I want to be a church that is a human chain. That is reaching out to the people that are farthest from God and we're offering them the hope of salvation. And I don't know how uncomfortable you're willing to be, but here's my prayer. Is that I would be willing to do whatever it takes, no matter how uncomfortable it is, to reach people for Christ. Let's pray together.